In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about bushcraft instructing and how to get into it. Foam in streams in the woods, what is it? Winter wild edibles, uses of willow, braces, tool sharpening, and using a bivy bag out in the open. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions about wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. And so um, I'm back down in the south of England. It's cold um, up here on the Weald. It's always a bit colder than a lot of the rest of the south of the UK. It tends to keep track in terms of development of the trees and the plants, particularly in the spring, around about the same as the northeast is where I'm from. In between, of course, there's more going on. There's certainly more signs of spring further south than here and further north than here. But we're a little bit higher up here, so a raised area of ground that spans from Kent into East Sussex into West Sussex. And uh, yeah, it's a really nice part of the world. Um, lots of deer in the woods here. There's, you can see, I haven't seen any today, but I've seen plenty of sign in the woods. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time of year to be out, but it's also short days. It's not quite five o'clock yet and we're losing the light. So I'm just gonna crack straight on with this episode because we've got some good questions and I am almost certainly gonna have to flip to infrared before I finish this. Um, I'll keep an eye on the camera and watch the, the gain level there. I've, at least it's got auto gain on this. All right, so first question is from Jason Miller, and this is about bushcraft instructing. It's from SpeakPipe and uh, via the SpeakPipe facility. Okay, um, hi Paul, uh, this is Jason. I'm interested in bushcraft instructing, uh, but I've got a few questions. Um, the first question is, how do you get into bushcraft instructing? Um, I mean, like, is it through uh course that you get into it or through work experience um i'm just not sure about that one uh second question i have is is there a need for bushcraft instructing in the uk so is there a high demand for them or a low demand for instructors the final question i have is can you make a good learn off of it okay that's all keep up the good work thanks well, that's um, some good questions there from Jason, um, some pertinent questions. We have talked about this before, um, and uh, this is something actually that I've noticed recently that I'm starting to get quite a lot of questions that I've answered in one way or another before. Um, and to be honest, I'm struggling remembering which episodes I answered them on, and therefore I'm, you know, I'm not blaming anybody for not easily finding those those uh, questions or those answers. So um, one thing actually I meant to mention, if there's any clever IT people out there who can think of an easy way of indexing the episodes so that people can search um, and find whether or not that question's been asked or something similar, um, whether it's done by keywords or, or what, I don't know. But if there's a way of sort of running a search engine over 
the descriptions of the episodes and I'm happy to sort of maybe put some more information in there in terms I keep records of the questions that have been asked so we could put them in and certainly the timestamps are there on YouTube uh, after a while we've got the, the praises of the questions so is there an easy way, here's a question for those of you out there who've got more IT knowledge than me, is there an easy way of us somehow indexing so that people come to ask Paul Kirtley, see if the question's been asked first before sending me, um, sending me, and that's not just in terms of saving my time in terms of getting more questions I've already been asked, but also in terms of actually getting the answer to people because I can say, yes, it's been answered before, but that's not very helpful because I can't even remember where it is and they've got to go trawling around and finding it as well. So is there, is there an easy way that I can say, yes, it was episode 22 where we talked about um, bushcraft instructing or bushcraft qualifications or NGB awards or, or whatever it is, um, go and have a look at that. Um, that would be something that I think as we get into the 50s, which we're not far off now, you know, and I would have had more episodes done by now had I not been so busy recently. Um, getting into the 50s up to the 100 mark, and I do fully intend to keep this going up to the 100, that's the next big goal. Um, yeah, some way of indexing all those questions because we're doing five to seven questions an episode. So by the time we get to 100 episodes, there's probably going to be 550, 600 at least questions being answered. Um, that's, I can't remember what all of those questions were and somebody needs to be able to find their answers. So yes, um, that would be good. So to answer Jason's questions about bushcraft instructing, how do you get into it? I don't think there's any single way of getting into bushcraft instruction. I think you need to step back and ask a question of yourself first of why do you want to be involved in bushcraft instruction. I get a lot of people writing to me and I have to admit I don't often have chance to reply to people individually when they ask this question who say can I come and um, be involved with you somehow as an unpaid assistant or come and do work experience or come and observe your courses so that I can learn more about bushcraft. Um, yeah, there is a way that you can come and learn more about bushcraft from me. It's come and do a course. Yeah, pay and do a course or read through the scores of articles on my blog, all those free resources. If you, if you don't have the money to come and do a course, um, there's scores and scores and scores of articles with direct tutorial instructional information on my blog as well as accounts of trips where we're using skills or using judgments or using combinations of things and you can glean an awful lot from those resources not to mention the previous episodes of Ask Paul Kirtley not to mention the Paul Kirtley podcast where I'm interviewing people who've done lots of different adventurous things or have been involved with bushcraft survival or outdoor skills in general and can bring their experience and expertise to bear there's an awful lot there and I would say first off try and you know those of you that want to get into instruction um, in the same way as if you wanted to be if you wanted to be a, a climbing instructor or a canoe instructor, you need a bit of basic skills first before you start showing them to anybody else. And I'm not one that says that you have to be an absolute S expert in a subject before you even start teaching somebody something, because actually if you're one or two steps ahead of somebody, you're often the best person to teach somebody 
else who's just starting up that path because that level that they're at a couple of steps behind you is more familiar to you you're more focused on the basics and um, you can help them out and it also helps in, in, involve you in teaching and understanding the subject by uh, examining it and deconstructing it and thinking about what you do so that you can explain it to somebody else and that, in, that helps your understanding so I'm not saying you have to be an absolute expert before you start instructing but equally you have to be honest about what you do know and what you don't know and don't BS people that you're some sort of expert or you've got years and years of experience when you haven't and the other thing is as well is just be open to continuing to learn yourself as you as you go up through as you go up through levels of knowledge and I think yes you can then maybe get a job um, or an unpaid position where you are assisting at a reputable school or a newly established school. Newly established schools are often looking for unpaid assistance because they can't necessarily afford to pay people. So there are opportunities to get in and get a taste and share the, the few things that you do know, but you do need to know a few things to start off with. And there are plenty of resources now more than ever that you can access easily. Books, of course, have always been there. Videos online, tutorials online articles online, podcasts, there's loads and loads of resources, but it does involve you putting in the work and going out and practicing those skills to get to a certain point. Um, so that's, that's important. Also, the other question to ask is, do you have a temperament for teaching? There is bushcraft and then there is instruction and coaching and, and teaching. And those two, yes, they do go together when you're teaching bushcraft, but equally they are two separate skill sets. Um, the skill of teaching somebody a physical technique and getting them to coordinate themselves and explaining something in a way that's understandable to different people who maybe prefer to be um, hands-on or maybe uh, like to think about things and have things explained first. You have to have different tools in your teaching toolbox and your coaching toolbox to be able to help people get up the curve. That's part of what you need. So do you have the temperament and the patience to be a teacher as opposed to a practitioner? That's the other question you ask because again I see a lot of people who are um, infused by the subject of bushcraft or some of the subjects within the umbrella of bushcraft and they think that by being involved in teaching it it's just a way for them to do that thing all the time. Well no actually it isn't. If you're teaching you're teaching. Yes you may well be demonstrating, you may well be practicing but a lot of your personal time with a skill, personal practice, personal improvement it has to be done on your own time not when you're with customers and so you have to be um, sure that you want to spend a good amount of your time with uh, students and the focus being on the student and the students learning not about the thing that you want to do that day, the thing that you want to improve on yourself. That's another question that you should be asking before you even contemplate. So in terms of how to get into it um, yes, you can do courses. There are some courses that are aimed at giving people a, a, a baseline level of skills, both in terms of bushcraft and in teaching, that are going to allow you to have um, some chance of employment if somebody finds that attractive. Now, there isn't a national governing body award in bushcraft. We've talked about that before, either in the UK or anywhere else. Um, and uh, therefore you don't actually need a piece of paper to go to a bushcraft school and say can I come and assist on some of your courses but the but the crux of the problem it goes back to your later question of is there demand and can you make a living from it is 
there does seem to be a good demand for bushcraft knowledge and information. There seems to be fewer people who are willing to pay for really good quality instruction. Um, there, in some quarters there seems to be this opinion that well, these are old skills, they should be passed on for free. Well, sure, that's fine. If you want to do that, and we've talked about this before, if you want to pass on a bunch of skills for free and not be paid for it, you go for it. But personally, I need to pay for insurance. I need to pay for equipment for customers to use so they get good quality equipment to use. Whether it's just a you know parachute and kettle and billy cans and all of those things, they need to be paid for. You need to pay for good, professional indemnity insurance um, and any school that doesn't have that I would stay well clear of both as a worker and as a customer that's something you should always check and if somebody's not willing to tell you the level of public liability insurance they've got and all those sorts of things they don't have it and therefore they, um, they should be avoided. There are costs involved with being a professional instructional outfit, running websites, answering emails, having phone systems. And so you are not going to get good quality service both at the front end when you book or on the ground from professionals who are able to focus on what you're doing if you're not paying for that. But if people want to, if people want to try and do it for free, if you're a millionaire already and you want to be... Um, philanthropic and pass on skills for free that's fine that's another way of doing it but for most people they need to earn a living um, and if they're going to devote their time to it and there are costs involved with doing it properly safely and professionally like this this area here that I am today is where we run a lot of our courses I need to pay for the land I need to have insurance in place so the landowner is happy for me to be here um, etc 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 you know the equipment that we use on courses needs to be stored somewhere we need a vehicle to move it around all of those things cost money and so you are paying to an extent for that when you pay for a course you're paying for the facilitation of getting you up the curve quicker than if you just bumbled around on your own and we talked we've talked about that in the past so um, yes there is some demand for for people paying for courses but there is a bigger demand for there's a bigger interest in just the skills and there's a lot of interest in watching survival shows on TV the proportion of people who then actually want to go out and learn how to do some of those things properly with instruction with mentorship is is far fewer but that's the same with any industry you know the, the, the amount of people who watch boxing compared to the number of people who go to a boxing gym the amount of people who watch downhill skiing when the Olympics is on compared to the number of people who actually go and do any serious downhill skiing it, it's always going to be a small percentage but bushcraft's quite a niche interest to start off with and therefore the number of people who are willing to pay to get into it uh, seriously and get good instruction is relatively small um, and then also it's not, you know, any sort of outdoor instruction is not particularly high margin, whether it's rock climbing, mountain biking, canoeing, you know, paragliding, anything that you do outdoors to a certain extent after a while becomes commoditized and um, particularly if there are standardized levels of um, qualification for instruction, um, you tend to get a standardized level of um, cost for those things in terms of what a course costs, um, what a day of instruction, one-to-one -one costs, those sorts of things. And yes, it's partly down to the um, infrastructure costs around that teaching. Um, you know, do you need a power boat and a 
<laughs> and a and a and a paraglide, or do you need you know a parasail, or do you need um, you know a ski slope? Um, you know what what it, what are the costs involved of actually facilitating the activity? That's part of it, and then also you know the um, I guess the time and cost it takes for the instructor to get to a level where they're allowed to teach you as well professionally. So those all of those things determine what people um, charge, but equally. A lot of people get into outdoor instruction for lifestyle choices. They love the outdoors, they love climbing, they love mountain biking, they love kayaking, they love canoeing, whatever it is, bushcraft. And they are happy just to be able to pay the bills by earning a little bit of money from doing that. So they're never going to, there's a lot of people who don't charge a lot, particularly people who are trying to get established. And so there's a constant price erosion at the bottom end of the market for straightforward, simple one day, two day experiences in particular. Um, and you see a lot of those people go out of business because again you get people setting up businesses who aren't business people you know they're interested in bushcraft they set up a bushcraft business they're not business people they don't get the pricing right they don't get the right insurance or they do all sorts of things wrong and they go out of business um, they don't know how to market to customers or they don't know how to get repeat business or whatever it is so you if you if you're going to get into it from a perspective of being somebody who is independent of an established business you need all of those skills as well so it, it you know and that's not just specific to bushcraft it's whether you know whether you want to be a canoe instructor or whether you want to be a climbing instructor or whether you want to be a mountain guide you have to get the clients as well unless you're working for somebody else who's got an established framework and established mechanics of getting some customers and being able to reach customers and for customers to be able to trust and have a trusted brand and all of those sorts of things um, so it's it's like in some ways it's like any other business you have to be able to do all those things or you have to work for somebody else and if you're going to work for somebody else you're not going to get paid a huge amount in bushcraft because the margins are quite small and it's the same with many outdoor activities you look at any outdoor instructor they, whether they're working at a national mountain center whether they're a top canoe coach whether they're a top ski coach most of them don't earn a huge amount of money unless they're maybe coaching national sports teams where there may be some grant funding and what have you it's it's a lot of it's about being a lifestyle choice and again that's something you should be aware of if you're not 100 percent committed to the subject and the love of the subject and the love of passing on that subject then it probably isn't for you but if you pass all of those tests in your own head then what i would do is approach some bushcraft schools um, before you approach frontier we're not recruiting at the moment um, but uh, approach some bushcraft schools write to them ask them what the opportunities are in terms of assisting on courses and that might just be a case of tidying camp helping set camp up getting firewood in making the tea those sorts of things but it gets you in on the ground and then you start to see how the courses work you can start to build your skills up see what skills are being taught you can practice those in your own time then maybe you can start assisting on some of the lessons and so on and so forth that's one way of doing it or you can go and do a course which will cost you a reasonable amount of money that teaches you a lot of those things and teaches you about running courses and there are a few courses like that around um, so those, those those are the but I should say they're not universally recognized and um, you know they, they, they're just another piece of paper at the end of the day what's important is your personality and your enthusiasm for the subject if you're somebody who wants to share what you know and you're enthusiastic about learning more yourself and enthusiastic about the subject and that enthusiasm comes across and you're clean and presentable and um, you get on with a variety of different people then 
um, because it is a people business at the end of the day. Teaching people skills in the outdoors is a people business. It's one of the things that's often underestimated by youngsters in particular, um, that you need to be able to get on with people. You need to have a range of different um, methodologies for teaching as well, but that comes with time. So that's a long answer. We have talked about it before. I'll try and pick out some previous episodes if I can remember which ones they are. Link them in the show notes at paulcurtley.co.uk under episode 48 and there'll be some more thoughts and discussion there as well. But hopefully that's enough for now, Jason, um, to help get you thinking about those things. Right, we do need to move on. We are losing the light quickly here. Foam in streams. This is from Andreas Halberg. Um, via my blog contact form and he says uh, hi Paul your videos have helped me a lot and given me confidence to start doing multi-day solo hiking trips which have now gotten me completely hooked and that I really enjoy for this I thank you now to my question I do most of my hiking in the woods in southern Sweden which is fairly densely populated in the small streams I pass there are often large patches of foam that look like they are from people dumping soap somewhere up stream. On my last hike I passed several small streams every hour and all of them had this foam in them, sometimes large lumps of it, uh, about a foot wide. This always makes me annoyed because I assumed they were from people, possibly fellow hikers or hunters, polluting the water with soap. The frequency of it on this last hike made me think that there might be some natural cause behind it. Is there such a possible natural cause perhaps connected to the season, uh, fall, autumn? Um, that could explain the foam. Thanks, Andres. Well, actually, there is a chance, of course, that there is some sort of pollution. Um, if you're nearby any sort of industrial uh, operation, and also there are some farming chemicals which can cause foaminess in uh, streams. That said, if it's in lots of little streams that are coming in from different directions, that's less likely. And I have to say, I often see foam in streams which I know to be clean. Um, there is a, an area near to me which um, quite high up in the stream you get foam building up and I know for a fact it's fed by a, a spring not much further up the stream and so there isn't really any opportunity for pollution above it and there certainly isn't anything polluting it. I know that stre stretch of stream very well and yet you still get foam building up in it but what, when I notice it happening is often not long after rainfall and my view and I think this is backed up by research I can't point you in a particular direction but many trees contain saponins which are natural soapy compounds and when you get heavy rainfall that gets washed down the trees and into the groundwater and into the streams and that, that builds up particularly in the, the small eddies in the streams you get this build up of foam almost scummy material and it builds up like foam in a, in a foamy bath and I think that's probably what you're seeing and you can also see it sometimes on the base of trees on the other side of this area, a couple of uh, kilometres from where I am, there is a sweet chestnut coppice and sweet chestnut, uh, Castanea sativa, has um, quite a reasonable amount of saponins in the leaves and when it's been raining heavily they've got quite smooth bark until they get to be quite large trees, the, the water runs down the, uh, the trunks and at the base of the trees, often where there's a bit of moss growing, you see a build-up of foam and that's the saponins coming down from 
the, the leaves in particular, but coming down the tree, build, building up and getting, as the water hits the moss at the bottom, you get this slight foamy buildup and that's what you're seeing there too. So I think most likely what you're seeing is a natural uh, phenomenon. But of course, do research the area, particularly if it's, uh, if it's built up, just to make sure there isn't some sort of uh, outflowing from an industrial unit there, which might be putting some sort of detergent. Um, I'd be surprised if that were the case, given environmental protections these days, but if there's, if there's not. Um, and also, the next time you see it, just mentally note, was, has it been raining recently? Because you often see more of it as, as you've had more rain, as, that, as those saponins get flushed into the watercourses. Good question. Winter wild edibles. This is from Jack McCormack um, from around Christmas time. Just catching up as usual. Um, I have a question for you regarding wild edibles in winter. I'm fairly good with the basic wild edibles in summer as well as medicinal plants, which I paid special attention to this spring and summer to learn as much as possible. This winter, I would like to look more into winter wild edibles. I understand that there will be considerably less than there are in summer, but what edible plants will still remain in winter and are fit for consumption? Many thanks, Jack McCormack. Well, Jack, I think if I remember rightly, you're in the north northeast of England, um, if I remember rightly, um, from previous correspondence. Um, so it's going to be fairly similar to here, you're not a million miles away, um, and pretty much all of your green herbage disappears in the late autumn and early winter, but you are going to start to see some spring greens coming up very early, so you know it, it's still winter, um, strictly speaking, and you are going to see some greens coming up in the latter part of winter. And with the milder winters we've had the last few years, those have been coming up earlier and earlier, you know, things like uh, opposite leaf golden saxifrage, and um, what else have I seen recently? You know, you've always got wood sorrel around. Um, started to see some uh, celandines which are somewhat toxic raw but you can use in certain ways um, not now later in the season um, you've got some greens coming up and you've got some things which do have but you know the celandines for example you can process to get some carbohydrate from the small tubers um, but the spring greens initially but do beware that some of the green plants that come up in the spring are quite poisonous it's a protection you know a lot of the you know I would say a large proportion of the green plants you see in early spring are poisonous than on average at any other time of the year simply because there's a lot of hungry animals around and there is the, there are those protections built into the plants as defense mechanisms they have done better over time because they have got some toxic substances which prevent things from eating them so they do quite well. Um, you also get spring greens coming up before the leaves on the trees come out on in the deciduous woodlands because they take advantage of that early spring sunshine as well so you do have this period sort of late winter early spring where you get those greens but they're not going to keep you alive for any length of time there's not a lot of calories in there and that late winter early springtime is one of the hardest times of year to feed yourself on plant foods you know you've got nuts and berries in the autumn um, there are some berries which persist into the winter. Um, you've got things like Viburnum opulus, uh, the, the Gelder rose. You've got things like uh, common dogwood, which has got edible berries, which often persist right into the winter. Um, they don't taste fantastic, and also you need to be careful that you don't mistake them for other things, such as buckthorns. Um, but um, they, are, they are there. Um, and then you've also got some very poisonous things which persist throughout the winter as well. You know, some of the bryonies, um, European spindle, 
Um, you know, so you need do need to be careful. Not every every bright uh, or even dark in the case of um, cornus, in, in case in the case of um, dogwood, um, but not every berry that you see persisting through the winter is going to be edible. So, but if if you if you do want to spend the time, it can be worth just learning a little bit about your berry. Um, a bit more about your berry ID through the winter because they they are there when some of the others have all finished you've got some there that are quite poisonous and you've got some around that are, that are still edible although none of them you know Gelderose, um, Verbenum opulus, um, some people consider it somewhat toxic although native peoples in some parts of the world ate it um, one of the best ways is just to take the fruit chew it up suck out the pulp and spit out the spit out the skins um, that's one way to do it um, but that again you're not going to survive for very long on those things what you're really going to need to find in the winter for if you if you have no food and you need to find food now is go and find some tuberous roots and of course one of the difficulties in finding tuberous roots in the winter is that um, you don't have the aerial parts of the plant to identify them from often although you can sometimes get sort of slightly woody stems left but um, that gives you two problems one is locating them in the first place and the second problem of course then is just positively identifying the the tuberous root if you just dig up an area of ground and pull out a bunch of things that look like um, bulbs and Tur you know little mini turnips and um, mini parsnips and various other shapes and sizes little fingers and you know what what are they you know have you dug up some burdock have you dug up something that is is a toxic member of the uh, apiaceae the carrot family for example have you dug up um, something in the solanaceae uh, family which is which is toxic have you dug up something in the ranunculaceae which is the buttercup family which is to toxic so you do need to be careful and be able to identify them and the best way to learn them frankly is by learning them in the late summer so positively identifying the, the, the aerial part of the plant, digging it up when the tuberous root is going to be full of starch and, and positively identifying it, knowing what it feels like, knowing what it smells like, knowing what it looks like on the cross section. Does it have chambers? Does it have fibres running through it? Is, it? is it got a thick skin? Is it brown? Is it red? Does it smell unpleasant? Does it smell nice? You've got to learn them that way and so that when you do come to um, come to need to dig them up in, in times when identification is more difficult. You've got that database to, to, to back up. Um, going out now and locating and identifying edible, tuberous, starchy roots and corms and what have you, this is the hardest time to start that learning process. So my recommendation would be, yeah, go out and see if you can see where there have been some a burdock for example you'll often see the remains of burdock stems but remember the burdock stems you're going to see are the second year growth at the end of the second year growth with the with the burrs on them they're not the best edible they're a biennial what you want is the end of the first year when they've just put out leaves they take a lot of um, ultraviolet light turn it through photosynthesis turn it into starch put it in the root stays there over winter leaves die off stays there over winter and then in the second year it puts that um puts that up same with thistles you can get some starch from some thistle species as well um, burdock are related to, to thistle both in the asteraceae family both in the same family as dandelions for example um, which again you can use the roots of for uh for food for if you can find them 
So there are plenty of starchy calorific roots around in the ground, but some of them are edible, some of them are poisonous, and the difficulty is differentiating between the two in the winter when you've got no background in any of them to start off with. Um, so my recommendation would be um, just have a goal for throughout the year, again, layer on a new level of understanding of the plants, not just the things that you can pick straight away, which it sounds like you've been working on, but also the ones that are going to yield good tuberous roots in the autumn and in the winter. Learn to identify them th this year, and then next winter you can have a really good basis on which you can go and forage for some of those things if you want. But it also makes, you know, just a final point, it makes you realise why preparing for the winter was really important for people living off the land because it's really really difficult to get plant foods at this time of year so if you collect an abundance of fruit and nuts and other things in the autumn and store them preserve them in a way that will help feed you through the winter whether it was pickling whether it was um, drying whether it's making pemmican you know those things allow you to extend that a glut that abundance of the fall of the autumn into the winter and to feed you through the winter and also the importance of hunting in some parts of the world for getting food in the winter because there just are no plant foods and that's before the ground's frozen and before the snow on the top of the ground of course you know you cannot go around digging tuberous roots up um, in the winter if the ground's frozen and then of course then you could also explore the possibilities of collecting um, the inner bark of some trees, drying it and processing it and using that either as a flower or augmenting um, existing flower supplies. For example, the Finnish soldiers who fought the Russians um, in the Winter War around about the time of the, the beginning of the Second World War. That, a lot of people don't know about that conflict. Um, if you, a good film around, made around that time, Max Manus. It's about a Norwegian resistance fighter, but he, he fought in Finland before um, the Germans inv invaded Norway. Um, and also there is a book, I can't remember the author's name, The Winter War um, is the name of the book. Um, that's worth reading. Um, but one of the things the Finns did was use the inner bark of pine, of Scots pine, Pinus sylvestris, for um, augmenting their food. Um, and so though that knowledge, you never know when it's going to be useful. So the more of these things that you can learn about, the better, um, whether it's for our benefit or whether it's for the benefit of people that we might teach in the future. Right, I'm going to turn the infrared, little infrared torch on the bottom of this camera so you can see. Whoop. There we go. What time are we on? Good, we're doing well, getting through the questions. Good questions, and I like questions about using natural resources. Um, I also don't mind questions about the industry as well, because I've been in it for a long time. And just, just to back on that one, there aren't many people who teach bushcraft who do it full time. I think there's this image that there's this raft of full time professional bushcraft instructors there, there aren't unfortunately it would be great if there were more um, because it would be a healthier it'd be a healthier industry there's a lot of people who do other things as well and that's not being critical it's just a, a fact of life that a lot of people have to do other things some of it's related so it might be pest control or forestry or or something involved with the outdoors but then they also do some bushcraft instruction and there are people who um, just there's a torch down in the woods there there's a, there is a footpath down the edge of the woods there um you know there are people who use use a mosaic of different income streams um to to uh to work together and and one of the things they do is um, bushcraft instruction 
So that's that's just another thought as I as I went through that. Uses of willow. This is from Matt Mandrell, who has just joined my tree and plant course. And if you're uh, if you're still waiting for information about tree and plant course, I am going to send some information out very very soon. If you haven't already got information about my tree and plant course. I will put a link in the show notes where you can get more information. I will send you some information if you leave me your email address there. And also, uh, Carwin was telling me I never point at the right corner um, because I'm looking at the screen and it's mirror image and ends up on, on YouTube. It's always the wrong corner. So up here somewhere will be a link that will also take you to somewhere where you can put your email address in and I will send you some information about my online tree and plant identification masterclass. It's one of my passions. One of my passions is being able to identify the useful resources. To me, that's kind of the, the core of bushcraft. If you can't identify the trees and the plants and the fungi and the birds and the animals and the tracks and the sign that you, that of all the nature that's around you, how can you then do any bushcraft? Unless it's really, really basic, kind of almost childlike bushcraft, you know, where you're just setting fire to things and you don't even know what those things are. To really understand the nuances of different materials and to optimize your ability to do things in the outdoors doors you need to be able to identify the resource in the first place and a lot of those resources as in the last question um the food resources clearly a lot of the plant foods you need to be able to identify the plants and it's the same with a lot of the utility uses you need to be able to identify the particular species of tree so you can harvest the bark so you can make cordage or containers or whatever it is um, and so the core of all of this is an intimate knowledge of the species that are around you and i think having a really really good foundation of trees and plants um, and how to identify them is um, a key thing if you really want to take your skills to a level where you're where you're at all competent beyond very very basic skills so here's a question from matt mandrell um, who has just recently joined my tree and plant id masterclass but this question is from a little while ago and his question is hi can you run through some uses of salix or salix however you want to pronounce it the willow family it's abundant along the rivers where i work as a canoe coach so it would be good to hear your experiences um, well, yeah, willow is very useful in a number of different ways and in no order of priority, just brainstorming here. Um, the bark contains uh, salicylic acid, which is a natural form of aspirin. And so you can use it medicinally that way. Uh, decoction, for example. Um, the bark is also quite fibrous. And so you can use it for making cordage and you can take strips of bark off and use them immediately for bindings. Say if you're building a, a shelter construction, for example, you can scrape off the outer bark, remove the inner bark, tear it up and lay up cordage immediately. You can do that or you can process the bark with a lye solution. Um, and the easiest way to make a lye solution in camp is to take wood ash from your campfire, which is quite alkali, boil in a billy can the stripped up willow bark with a lye solution. It'll go quite a burgundy red colour, leave it out to dry, and then again strip that up, lay that up into cordage, and that is a more resilient, more flexible and long-lasting cordage than just making it straight off the tree. So you can make good cordage with willow. Um, you can also use willow wands for weaving, basket weaving, fish traps, that type of thing. Um, you can use willow wands, twist them up and make withies. 
um, and that's a, a willow is one of the best uh, sources of materials for making withies. Hazel is one of the other really good ones. So different willow species where you get these secondary growths going up. That's very, very useful. Um, willow itself is um, the wood burns quite well when it's dead. You can, if you leave it in the round, you get good embers. So for roasting fish and meat or for slow cooking with things like Dutch ovens, um, dead standing willow wood is good for that. Um, people often reach for beech and oak and they're excellent, of course, but willow is one that people often overlook. And if you've also got dead standing willow that has, is well seasoned, it um, is very good for making uh, bow drill sets as well, as long as it's not too hard. A thumbnail test on um, bow drill wood made of willow is really important. If it's a bit too hard, it's polished and it's just it's exponentially harder. Um, but equally, it can be a bit punky, it can get woodworm in it and uh, it can be quite punky and you don't want the end of your spindle disintegrating so make sure it's of a good consistency that thumbnail test is really important but a good bow drill wood um, and then the other thing as well is it also makes decent feather sticks it's quite fine grained wood it carves nicely it shaves nicely you can um, you can make some decent feather sticks with it as well um, so lots and lots of uses and i'm sure there are others in terms of basketry and, and cordage and uses of those things but um, they're all very very useful and of course you mentioned it's by water and it's you know you're paddling down a river so clearly there's plenty of water to paddle on there and it's obvious where the water is but willow tends to like to have different willow species in general if you think about weeping willow which is a non-native species in the uk through to goat willow crack willow white willow they like to be near water and they like their feet in damp ground so even if there isn't water apparent on the surface if you see willows in the um in the environment and in the summer they've got light generally they've got lighter undersides of the leaves so when there's a bit of a breeze you can pick them out in amongst the hedgerows and across on the other sides of fields and um, through the forest because of that lighter underside on the leaves and you can spot them um, and they tend to have a certain character as well about them which you, you learn to recognize but those leaves are a real giveaway if you can spot them in the environment at a distance, that's also going to tell you that there's damp ground there. It's maybe somewhere where if, even if there isn't water on the surface for you to get water, you can dig down into the ground, create um, what's colloquially known as a gypsy well uh, or a sip. You know, at worst, it will be a sip well, but hopefully it would fill up with water. You could scoop that out. You could then let it fill up again. It's going to be clearer. You probably have to filter it somehow. Of course, filtration, Millbank bag, of course, or one of the new brown bags. Um, or if you don't have that through a knotted trouser leg or something to remove the sediment and then boil. So willow is a useful water indicator as well. So lots and lots of uses of willow. Just some baseline ones there, but just off the top of my head, the things that I can think of. Um, and then of course you can, you, of course you can carve from it. You can, you can make pegs. You can just lots and lots of different things that you can use it for. So a very, very useful one all the campcraft stuff that requires forked sticks, Y forks, side branches, you often can get those from willows as well because of the prolific growth that you get. So pot hangers, um, cooking cranes, all of those sorts of things, the things to hang your Coleman lantern up off a tarp guy line, all of those sorts of things that you might want to make around camp. Willows are a really good source of materials for that as well. One of your friends in the woods for sure. Braces, next question. This is from Al Coots. 
and he said, I was reading your piece on cold weather clothing and you mentioned braces. Living in the States, I'm not familiar with what braces are. Also on another subject, have you met Colin Fletcher? I have several of his books. Stay warm, Al C. Um, well, Al, it's funny you should send me that question because on a video um, in my online elementary course, I mentioned in a few of the videos, I used the phrase belt and braces. Um, and again, I had um, a couple of people in North America, we've had quite a few uh, people join that online program from Canada and from the United States, particularly the northern states in the United States. Um, you know, and um, again, <laughs> it's a phrase that I use, I guess, quite a lot, belt and braces. Um, but if you don't know what braces are, then that phrase doesn't make, mean a lot to you. It's what you guys would probably call suspenders, um, but suspenders can also mean something else, of course, and searching on the internet for <laughs> suspenders might give, you the wrong, might give you the wrong search result, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's what Americans would call suspenders. And the phrase belt and braces means you've got two ways of holding up your pants. You know, you've got a belt on your waist and then you've got your braces or your suspenders holding them up as well. So it's, it's two ways of securing the same thing. So when it's important, so a belt and braces technique, is something that is ensuring it's going to, it's going to work. So in the context of the article you were reading, it literally was about braces of means of holding up your, your trousers. Uh, your pants even <laughs> but again pants mean something different over here to over there so these nuanced differences in the english language it's kind of fun um have i met colin fletcher no i haven't but um, i'm sure he would be a very interesting person to meet um tool sharpening hi paul a little question on tool sharpening what are your opinions on stropping knives. Sorry, this is from Nathan Sturgis. What are your opinions on stropping knives on abrasive paper or lapping film over a mouse mat, uh, or lapping film over a mouse mat, instead of traditional flat stone sharpening? I always use stones followed by a strop on my belt until last year. I achieved great results with the stones and was worried there may be too much edge thickening due to the slightly convex profile you inevitably create through abrasive stropping. Plus, I feel it's a little lacking in finesse in comparison. However, I now find the abrasive stropping is brilliant, especially away from home. No trouble making sure angles are correct all the way through the stroke, no need to find a stable surface for the stone, etc. Best regards, Nathan. Um, I've got a few thoughts on this. Um, and without going into huge diatribes about different things, I think at the end of the day, if what you does get you see your knife sharp, particularly in the field, that's fine. Um, we're not talking about an academic exercise here. And I know there are plenty of people, I have books on my shelves, thick books on sharpening tools. And I know there's a real art to it. And when I sharpen my tools at home, um, I go to great lengths to make sure they're in tip top condition. But when you're in the field, it's a compromise. But, what, but at the end of the day, the tool is there to be used. And so my first comment would be, and this isn't aimed at you, Nathan, because 
I understand you're somebody who wants to do something the best way that you can and you're asking me for your advice and that a lot of these questions are coming from that perspective but equally I see a lot of people obsessing about knife sharpening but not obsessing about what you can do with a knife. I see very many fewer people who are very good at carving and I mean carving at the level that people like I don't know, Lee Stoffer does, or um, who I follow on Instagram, or uh, Giles Newman, for example, or even my mate Spoons, or um, some of the classic, you know, Swedish handcrafters. Um, I don't see many people carving at those levels, and yet I see lots of people obsessing about sharpening their tools. And my suggestion would be, if your aim is not if your aim is to be an expert on knife sharpening, then by all means, go all in on the knife sharpening, you know, nuances and techniques and try lots of different things out on different steels um, and all of those sorts of things. That's fine if that's what your intention is. Um, but you probably need a microscope to study the results and, you know, in terms of the academic results of what's it exactly doing to the edge. In terms of practical field use, um, you know, people criticise me for teaching people to sharpen morrows on a cheap combination oil stone that you can get from a hardware store and using some three-in-one three-in-one oil but it makes the knife sharp enough and robust enough and have enough edge retention with a carbon steel mora to be able to do all of the things that I might teach on a elementary course including making feather sticks way beyond the capabilities of most people who ever bother to make feather sticks and so my question would be why go to the nth degree with the knife sharpening if you're not going to the nth degree with what the knife can do for you and um, particularly in the field that said um, we do want to be able to keep our knife sharp and we do need to be able to do it efficiently when I'm at home I use a series of Japanese water stones with a Nagura stone and I use stropping and I use a dedicated leather strop um, I rarely use a stropping paste but if I do use a stropping paste I actually use a paddle strop and I use a an abrasive, abrasive material, maybe just a polishing paste, a metal polishing paste to put that final finish on it. Um, and that is something that you can do in the field as well. And I think it's, it's definitely uh, the case that people go back to the stone too readily, particularly in the field, whereas a quick strop will, will bring it back up to the edge that you want, especially if you spent a good amount of time getting a really good finish and a really good edge at home. You know, give it the bench stone treatment or the bench, whatever your bench mark standard at home is, do that at home, take it into the woods. Often just a homemade little paddle strop with a bit of polishing paste works a treat. Yep, absolutely. So that and a combination slip stone like a Spyderco double stuff or a DC4, particularly the vintage DC4s as opposed to the newer ones, or a um, Grand's Fours axe stone, if you've got an axe stone for sharpening your axe, um, in the field, you know, a paddle, a little strop and a, and a stone is fine in the field. And if you can give it that little finish with a bit of polishing paste, I don't always take those on expeditions and trips, but if you can, um, that's gonna keep your knife in good shape without you having to go back to the stone, which saves you metal off your knife. It saves you time as well. And that's, that's the important thing. Um, but if you just strop or do a bit of honing, you know, some people use the Spyderco ceramics, um, over time you're going to get a bit of rounding 
and that can be over time once you get a bit of rounding on your bevel particularly if it's close to the edge it might be just a little bit harder for you to keep a good edge on it for for a length of time and at that stage you probably want to go back to your your stone if you if you've got a really if you've got a flat grind knife at that point and you've rounded it a bit particularly towards the edge and it's harder to keep it sharp for any length of time you're going to need to go back to the stones so you've got to strike that balance but i think you need to be pragmatic in the field you know you can't go to the woods if you're making a journey if you're actually going to the woods for practical purposes of covering distance from day to day whether it's by canoe whether it's by foot um, whether you're out hunting you can't do that and carry you know four different four different oil stones or four arkansas stones for example or japanese water stones it's just carrying bricks and so you need to carry something which will keep it in shape while you're out on your trip and then you can keep your bench range of bench uh, processes whatever they are um, at home to get it back to tip-top shape at home and i would make that differentiation but at the end of the day whatever works for you is the best thing for you if it works for your the combination of time that you spend at home versus in the woods and how much wear it gets but please do spend time using the knife as well um, plenty of people with all these what are they called draw queens where they have these lovely knives that's fine if you're a collector the same as you want to keep your penny black and all your stamp collection um, or your dinky toys or your mint condition star wars figures or you know there's nothing wrong with collecting but if you're going to use the stuff please do use it don't obsess too much about the sharpening as long as it's sharp it'll be good last one question from marcus hello paul that's marcus from berlin um i have a question i want to use a bv bag from Snackpack in german summer spring autumn and winter conditions but I want to use it only in the flat country, northern Germany, not Alpine mountains. I want to use the German foldable army installation mattress outside, a very thin sleeping bag inside the BV bag, and no shelter, no poncho, no tarp over that. So I want to sleep in the open field with this with a beefy bag and my question is if it is rain normally if it's there is there is if there is a thunderstorm i will not do that but if it's raining light and i am turning from the left to the right what i do if it's cold and the ground is cold then i want to get away one after the other side every hour from the cold ground i turn to, from the left to the right every hour do the water come through the zipper of the special forces beefy bag from snug pack or doesn't the water come through do you recommend to use in that conditions a sleeping bag a bivy bag without zipper which snug pack also offers or do you think a zipper is better in warm conditions okay quite a long 
question there, Marcus, but I get where you're coming from. Um, I think the reason that Marcus has asked this question is because of my lightening the load uh, video with regards to looking at different bivy options, particularly bivy bag sleeping mats and tarp combinations and reducing the weight down to and specifying it for the season. And I do use the Snugpack Special Forces bivy um, after having seen a friend of mine, um, he purchased one a couple of years ago and I was quite impressed with the performance he was getting from it. So I decided to invest in one too. They're not massively expensive, they weigh very little um, and, and it's going very well. And also just interestingly recently I reproofed it with some Nikwax reproofing, um, used Tech Wash first and then I used the um, use the TX Direct wash-in that I also use on my um, breathable fabric uh, other bivy bags and also my jackets and that seems to have worked very well so I was a bit concerned that might not work so well but I followed the washing instructions for washing that material anyway and that seemed to work fine um, and it was covered with you know remains of where slugs have been on it and so it was good to get that clean and get that reproofed and back up to good performance because things when they get dirty they don't work as well um, so a couple of things um, if you feel like you get too cold and you have to move from one side to the other the first thing I would suggest is get a thicker sleeping mat um, to, to sleep on that's the first thing I would recommend and the reason I mention that is because the, the, the second part of the answer will sort of determine something that's important um, if you find like you're getting cold spots due to conduction with the ground the insulation you've got between you and the ground is not good enough um, and the a sleeping mat is the thing that will make the biggest difference there um, because it, even if you've got a, a, a big sleeping bag, if you're, if you're going to lie on top of it, you're going to squash the loft out of it. Um, and I know you said you're using a thin sleeping bag in summer conditions, but the point is that however good your sleeping bag is, the, the sleeping mat makes a big difference because you're going to squash the air out of the sleeping bag to a large extent. And the conductivity where you get cold spots is down to how much um, heat is coming through um, from you to the ground through the sleeping mat and a, and a more insulative sleeping mat will pay dividends. It doesn't need to be massively heavier than the one you have already. That's the first thing. Um, and the reason I mention that, apart from that being a general point, the other reason I mention that is um, you're worried about the zip. The zip isn't the biggest issue. Even if you bought, say, a, 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 a British military bivy bag, which has a, a draw cord at the top but has no zip. Um, the issue is the hole in the top of the bivy bag that you get into and out of. That's where the rain's going to come in. It doesn't matter if it has a zip or not. Um, yeah, there might be a, a little bit of rain might come through the zip, but it does have a little baffle over it. The big issue is the hole where your head is um, and you get into is where the water's going to come in. Even if you pull it right up, there is still going to be a hole there. Um, and yeah, okay, you know, you can say I won't be out in heavy rain, I wouldn't plan to do that. But, you know, weather conditions, particularly in the summer, can be quite changeable. You can get heavy rainstorms unexpectedly. If you, you know, particularly early in the morning, you get, so, you get a weather front coming through, you'll get um, rain early in the morning, and you can't always necessarily predict that. Um, if you're out for any length of time, if you don't have access to weather forecasts. So um, there is that, but the, the point is that I think you're overly obsessing about the zip. The reason the zip's there is so that people, with that particular model is so that you can get into and out of it quickly. But I like top zip bags because it means you can sit up in your sleeping bag 
without having pulling the, the, the bivvy bag up behind you and everything getting dirty and in the dirt. So you can lay the bivvy bag out, have it unzipped and almost use it like a bit of a ground sheet to protect your sleeping bag as well. And I like that. And in particularly in cold conditions, I like bags with top zips because you can get into and out of the sleeping bag more easily and get undressed. And, and I know we're not talking about cold conditions, but it's just something in general. I quite like top zip bivvy bags. But the big issue having slept out in multiple different models of bivvy bag over the years, spanning back about 20 years, I've been using bivvy bags a bit longer now. Actually, my first bivvy bag was a double hooped bivvy bag from Survival Aids or Penrith Survival um, back in about 1991. I think I bought that bivvy bag, 92 perhaps. Um, and that was a double hooped, almost like a mini tent. Even then you've got a bit of condensation inside from breathing inside. All the other bivvy bags I've had have either been full zip bivvy bags or full draw cord closures or zips that you can close up. But there's always a hole at the top where you get in and unless it's almost like a mini tent. And that's where the water will get in. And the only way I've found of consistently avoiding the water getting into the top where you get in with a draw cord enclosure, like on the MOD bivvy bag, like on the on the snug pack special forces bivvy like on some of the mountain range bivvies i used to use which are not made anymore um, the only way you can consistently and and really you know absolutely surely prevent water from coming in when you get moderate rain is by lying on your front and having the hole facing downwards and for you to breathe down um, or putting a tarp over the top of you or putting something over the top of you even just you know propping up a um, I've seen people use a bin liner, like a polythene bin bag, prop that up over the head to, to take the rain away from the face because otherwise water will come in around your face, around your head, like it does when you're wearing a hood and wind and the rain blows at you. Imagine you're wearing a hood in your jacket and you lie on your back in a rainstorm. The water will get in and get down your neck and that will happen in that bivvy bag unless you lie on your front. So if you had a hood on um, with your jacket and you laid on your front, the water would run off. But then you're lying in one position and that takes me back to the point about the thickness of your mat. If you're finding you're getting too cold, even in the summer, lying in one position for any length of time, um, in the rain, you'd be forced to lie on your front to stop the water coming in the hole, not the zip. The zip's not the issue, it's the hole. Um, and that is then gonna make you uncomfortable um, both in terms of temperature and perhaps even just in physical comfort, lying on your front on a mat that's too thin um, for an extended period of time may be pretty uncomfortable. So those are my thoughts there and hopefully that's useful um, to you, Marcus. And that brings us to the end of the session. Time is pressing on. It's getting properly dark here now and I will leave you to it. But thank you for listening. If you're a podcast listener, thank you for watching. If you're watching this um, on YouTube or my blog, please do follow on Instagram. Please do leave your name if you are interested in the Tree and Plant Identification Masterclass, which I will put the link up to here and I will send you some information out. No obligation, it's just send you the information. If you're interested, you're interested. If you're not, you're not. That's cool. As I said, right back at the beginning, tons of free resources on my blog too. Check that out, paulkirtley.co.uk. Thanks for your interest. Thanks for your support. And I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care and see you soon.